So we've all read, or I'm assuming you as a listener to this podcast have read at least a few books about great team cultures. Uh, There's great ones like Legacy about the All Blacks, the Cubs way about the Chicago Cubs, the Barcelona way, the Patriot way. I mean, we've all read books about or watched movies about great team cultures, and maybe we've even experienced a great team culture. Now, these books, these movies, they inspire us and they help us to create our own vision for our team. But realizing that vision, that's not easy. Dave Brandt, the former head coach at Messiah College, he didn't just have a vision of being the best soccer team in the country to play for, he actually made that a reality. And as he and Mike Zigarelli will share in in today's episode, it really starts with the leader themselves. So we're excited to go deeper today in the second part of our conversation with Mike Zigarelli and Dave Brandt about how Messiah Soccer became the best team to play for in the country. Welcome back to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host Nate Sanderson. On this podcast and through our work at TOC Culture Consulting, we're about helping coaches build better team cultures. And we do that through mentorship, community, and practical systems and strategies. Learn more at thriveonchallenge.com, as well as getting our coaching notes for each episode of the podcast. So you can skip that whole note-taking process as you listen. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Mike Zigarelli. I'm curious about this. A lot of our audience and a lot of our purpose at Thrive On Challenge is really trying to encourage coaches to be more effective at using sport to impact people, you know, to help young people to grow in character and leadership and those kinds of things. And obviously, that's a central component of the approach at Messiah. Um, one of the things that stood out to me in the book and, and in talking to Coach Brandt was just the, the long-term effect that participation in both the men's and women's programs seem to have on individuals, you know, long after their playing career is done. And I wonder, as you kind of take a look at that from, you know, this macro viewpoint, what do you attribute, you know, their ability to transform lives to? I mean, what, where does that come from? Yeah, well, there's a tremendous amount of social conditioning that goes on on any team. Anytime a group of people get together, anytime somebody goes to college for four years, you're going to come out different than, than you went in, right? And so, um, I mean, that, that's the underlying principle here. We're going to bring people into a team and they're going to come out differently than, than they went in. Uh, and they do. I mean, it, it changes people from the inside out. They stop thinking as narcissistically, as in a self-focused way and individualistically as they had been in the past. And they're about something bigger than themselves. Team over individual is a, a mantra there, a core value on both sides, the men's and the women's side. And you know, it might be words at first, but it's flowing through their DNA by the, the time they graduated from this place. How does that happen? It's, it's pure leadership. I mean, the, the leaders drive the, the culture there and then the culture drives everything else. And so these leaders are intentional about building a culture that not only gets great soccer results, but it also gets, gets great human results. It get, gets results in, in character, gets results in discipleship, as, as Christians might say. Just it, it changes people. There's a transformation that, that happens in this program and it's intentional and they, they know exactly where they want to go and they're, they're doing all the big things and all the little things to make that happen. So. Yeah, it's it's the leaders who are are behind it, both the coaching staff as well as the um, as well as the student leaders that grow into those roles. Now we're going to move into the second part of our conversation with Dave Brandt. We'll be back with a lot more from Mike Zigarelli in 
part three of the series. One of the things that I see a lot of coaches do is they're trying to improve their culture. They try to focus on every little aspect of the program. And there's a few examples in your book of what we call with the coaches that we work with shocking standards, which are just, we're going to focus on a few things in our program and they're going to be a little bit out of the outside of the, the normal realm of a standard of a program. Things that I would term as shocking standards at uh, Messiah were the seniors clean up the balls and then the cones after practice, they hand out waters. There's not just class participation expected, but student athletes are expected to have a relationship with their teacher and mandatory family fun on Friday, like this whole, like a force, yeah, force family fun Fridays. And these are things that, you know, they're a little bit shocking. They're a little bit extreme, but they send a pretty powerful message that we're that, Hey, we're different here. How do you implant those standards within your program? How do you establish those standards so that players buy in and start to accept those type of things? Yeah, I think a couple of things, you know, one, um, I, I look back on the, on all of this and, um, again, it, it all started with this idea that, and of course I've been calling it vision to make this the best place in the country to play college soccer, not necessarily the best team. I mean, it's, it's been a very good team and it still is, but it's a division three men's soccer team. Um, you know, we're, I think it would be unrealistic and sort of foolish to be like, well, we're just going to be the best team. I mean, that's, that's a classic example of absolutely unrealistic pie in the sky, whatever. But, you know, this vision was reachable. It was doable. And we were single-minded in that vision. And so, like I said before, it became the measure of everything. And we just apparently didn't care <laughs> about anything else. We, we loved the vision. We thought it was compelling. It grabbed people's hearts. We thought it was awesome. And I think what's made recruiting easier for me over the years is it is a specific vision and uh, I can articulate it. And when I do, you know, you know, whether you would fit into that and whether you like it or not. So this goes back to preparing the soil. And that I mentioned before, you know, so the first thing is like, we had articulated this stuff. We're like, if you come here, then we do all this sorts of stuff like force family. I mean, it's not every Friday, but like, yeah, we do a lot of forced family fun. Nothing's really optional. Like you're in or you're out. Like if the team's doing it, you're, t- you're doing it, you know, all this sort of stuff. And um, I just think we did a good job of preparing the soil and reminding people that it wasn't about them and it was about the team. And ultimately we, we, we were able to teach guys to value the team and the experience so much that this stuff became something they wanted to do. And we were just so honest in it. You know, I, I would say, you've all probably got something better or more fun or whatever pulling you on this Friday night or that Sunday night or whatever. But you know what? The team is really important too. And we've decided, agreed to invest in the team together. And this is part of investing in the team. I mean, heck, my wife has to stay home alone. I'm hanging out with a bunch of 20 year olds, right? You know what I mean? And so, but that's just being honest and transparent about it. Um, um, and recognizing and educating that's just a, if we want these things that we want, it's, it's a part of it. This is how we're going to get it. Curious, Dave, a lot of our coaches um, in our community, so much of our purpose in, in our work is mentoring coaches that are trying to walk on a transformational journey to use sport to be able to transform the lives of kids that they work with. And I think one of the challenges that as coaches are making the transition maybe to that kind of vision for their purpose in coaching, we sometimes encounter some resistance, you know, from players or from parents or stakeholders in the program, whoever it might be, 
um, that still believe that winning is all that matters, you know, that, that the size of the house is the only, you know, bottom line, right? And so uh, one of the questions that we just continue to wrestle with, and I'd just be curious to get your perspective on, is how do you get players to buy into that vision that we're here for a purpose that goes beyond winning championships? I think, I think there's, uh, I was going to say two key elements, maybe it's just one and then an outcome as a result of that. So, um, uh, not, not to get too wordy about it, but, um, there's one concept that's been foundational to my thinking about leadership and coaching that I think applies. Um, guy named Jim Collins, who's a business author, he wrote good to great built to last great by choice. Um, some really foundational books 20 years ago ish, um, uh, coined this concept called genius of the and like a N D the word and, and genius of the end is putting two things together that are generally assumed not to be able to go together. They just don't go together. I mean, the easiest example is like high quality, low cost, right? Everybody knows you can have one or the other. You can't have both. Um, but then, you know, more into our realm, like, right, discipline, structure and freedom, right? Discipline and creativity, um, authoritative, relational. You're like, ah, uh, and people, people get stuck in this idea that it's a balance, right? That, it, that it's kind of like this, like, well, if I want more of this, I got to have less of that. Foundational to my coaching philosophy and the vision at Messiah was we, we reject um, what we call the tyranny of the or. We're like, no, we embrace the genius of the end. And we expect both things here. Well, the reason I bring that up is I just think it's important. And when I talk about servant leadership, you know, servanthood is a very sort of nice concept, right? If I'm for others and not myself, well, that's nice, right? Good, good of me and all that. Um, I think people assume that servant leaders need to be just super nice people, gentle, lowly, humble. And I don't know, that doesn't actually even really fit me. And so that's trouble for me if that's true. Um, I'm always quick to say servant leadership must be accompanied by what I call an achievement orientation and a strong one because results do matter and they are important. This was the approach at Messiah. It wasn't just so much hey, we want the best place in the country to play college soccer. We want you to have buddies, friends, and a really good experience. I mean, all that was true. We also wanted to be perennial national champions. And whether we get there or not, that's what we wanted. And that's what I feel like the potential of the program was. Somebody listening may be at a program in a situation where national championship is not the ceiling. It's a lower ceiling than that. Conference championship, I don't know, whatever, upper half of the conference. It doesn't matter but fulfillment of potential in terms of results is important. And so while promoting this experiential, relational, bigger than soccer philosophy, we did not one ounce give away our hard line, bottom line results, fulfillment of potential, which can be measured. We put the two together. It was both. It, and it was never a sliding scale. It's not like we were 60-40 um, good relationships and fun times. We were a hundred that, and we were a hundred results. And I think it's an important way to think about this. And so, given that, uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It was just a really cool addition to the normal verve of just win, win, win. We actually didn't let go of that. In fact, I would say, I'll stop after this. My college coach, who I've mentioned, he's like a John Wooden guy. Okay, um, and I love John Wooden. I mean, I, I know. <laughs> Some people don't remember who John Wooden is, but that's a crime. If you don't know who John Wooden is, look him up. Unbelievable man, leader, and coach. But Wooden didn't talk a lot about winning, right? He was a process guy. My college coach took that to the nth degree. He's like a disciple. In 16 years, 
I'm telling you guys the truth. I swear I didn't hear, hear the man, my college coach say the word win once. We did not talk about winning. And we did it out of principle. And I respect that. That's okay. But, but when I became head coach, I was going to talk about winning and I just didn't care. I mean, I wasn't going to apologize for it. It was just time. It was me and it was my vision. So I'm just saying, and I think it made a huge difference at Messiah. Um, that was a huge piece of the good to great transformation is that we're like, no, that winning's a big part of it. Let's figure out how to do it. And I would say when I took over at Messiah, we'd always been good, but we were too soft to really become champions. We would lose to our rival three or four out of every five times. It would take three or four losses for us to summon enough righteous indignation to beat them the fifth time. Then we'd go back to our losing way. This, this was our reality. So we could have gone 100 years uh, on the same line, and we would have never won a national championship and never fulfilled our potential. Something had to change. So that's what changed. It was an embracing of both, which wasn't a hard sell. It's interesting. And certainly players are, uh, I think if you ask them, would you like to win and have a great experience or win and only hang out with your clique or you know, have drama and infighting and that sort of thing, that they can instinctively understand that there's value and unity and, and chemistry and that sort of thing. So um, I, I love that, the power of the ant, right? That it doesn't have to be one or the other is brilliant. Um, at Drive On Challenge, we have a resident soccer expert that you might be familiar with, Mike Avery, a uh, sure. good friend of ours on the podcast. And I texted Mike yesterday and I said, hey, we're going to talk to Dave tomorrow for the pod. I wonder if you have any, any questions. And he sent me one. So I'm going to throw this in for Mike here. Okay, uh, right. there's, there's a quote in Zigarelli's book where you um, said, I'm relational, but clearly in charge. How do you build relationships with players and yet maintain that level of authority that you have to have as a head coach? Yeah. And I, you know, I think, I think being quote unquote in charge can, can look lots of different ways. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I do say I just by my own nature of personality, I'm pretty authoritative. Um, and I'm pretty controlling. I was going to say somewhat controlling, but I'm probably pretty controlling. Right. I want things a certain way. I think by virtue of the fact that I have a pretty specific and narrow vision, both on the field, like X's and O's, how we're gonna play and off the field. And I care about that being executed. So all that sort of equals bleeds into like, yeah, I'm gonna be on top of this. And you know, lots of different um, coach types, of course, and, and lots of different things work, but I'm just a really hands-on guy. Like I'm in the thick of it, I'm in the middle of it, I'm barking, I'm telling, I'm teaching, I'm preaching. and so. Yeah, what comes off there is, yeah, I'm, I'm in charge and it's authoritative and I want you to do this. And there's a couple things then about how I think you, you pull off both. Um, I think leadership coaches, head coaches for sure, um, maybe even worse, are famously insecure. That's my opinion. Um, there's a ton of it in me for sure. I think it's just natural. Like, are we going to win? Are they going to like me? Are they going to buy in? Are they going to believe me? I mean, all this stuff. And I think that insecurity, um, if we don't overcome it, leads to a lot of bad things. We start saying things. We don't mean to lie, like at all. But we start saying things that we think you want to hear. Or we think we need to assert ourselves and we get really upset or whatever. You know what I mean? Like we just start turning the mirror a little bit so and, and we don't mean to not be transparent but we do it and i think it comes out of an insecurity and so 
for whatever reason, if there's one thing that I think has enabled me to kind of do both, and it's a genius of the end, right? I mean, to be authoritative and truly caring and relational at the same time, we just don't think of it that way. I think it is a genius of the end. But, you know, if there's one thing that has enabled me to do that, I, I think I've been able to, to and it's, it's a fight, but to overcome those insecurities and just be honest. And uh, I remember reading about Vince Lombardi, right? Here I am bringing up guys who are 300 years old. I apologize, everybody. But, um, you know, Vince Lombardi, just iconic coach. And, you know, the, the famous quote about him is, you know, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. And that just sounds horrible and all that. When you read a little bit more, um, I actually think he was more in the camp of what I'm talking about. And I've read a lot about it and I've learned. And the cool thing about Lombardi, he'd, he'd storm and bellow and yell and get upset. And that was his personality. And then he'd apologize. He'd feel terribly good. I just love the realness, the transparency. I mean, I didn't know Vince Lombardi, obviously. Um, but I just think, I think the, he gets a bad knock in some ways in those things because I see him as a passionate, hard on the sleeve, transparent guy. And that was his personality. That's just who he was. He was true to himself, but he was honest. He was willing to apologize. He was willing to be wrong. I think it's so important. So many coaches struggle with being wrong right? Don't question me. And we don't say that, but we'd rather not be questioned because we don't be wrong. To me, I encourage my guys to what I call shoot holes in my philosophy, like attack it, try, because I want a bulletproof philosophy. And if you can shoot a hole in it, clearly it's not bulletproof. And it's more important that we are right than it is that I am right. But that's a security issue. I mean, I don't want to be wrong, right? Nobody wants to be wrong, but I've just been able to believe and I'd follow through on the fact that what's most important is that we get this right. And we're, even though I'm in charge, we got to do it together. It's my job to be in charge, but we're working together. And so, you know, I think you combine that with more sort of um, typical answers like, hey, you have to really care about your guys. I mean, no kidding, right? And so, you know, they've got to know that no matter what I do or how I come across, they have to know why, what's behind it. Um, and that has to be genuine what's behind it. And I have to be able, um, to know them, and we have to um, have a relationship that goes just beyond just the field and just the the pragmatics of do this, do that. So I, I hope that makes sense, and that begins to answer. I mean, you guys are asking good questions, but those are big questions, so hard to answer. One of the things I can tell in our conversation already with you is that you really know who you are and your values, like what's important to you. I think that's important for any coach to figure out when they start to build their team's culture. Now you've left Messiah and you've gone on to Navy and Pittsburgh and now you're at Hope College. And I'm just curious, as you've moved from Messiah and moved to other programs, obviously knowing who you are is critical as you go to build the culture. But I'm curious, maybe the things that you stay consistent on and some of the things that maybe you've had to adapt to the fact that you're in a different environment. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think it's important. Um, I mean, it's critical. Critical to to realize that you know one size doesn't necessarily fit all, and so um, a, a measure of elasticity and flexibility is is relevant and super important. That being said, I would say the basic tenets of who I am, um, uh, the values I'm going to want or articulate uh, to a team, and what I'm going to want, have been pretty steady. But I think it's important that that steadiness can sort of just do this, do this, take this shape. Um, 
I think the biggest thing for me is I've just um, articulated it slightly different ways each place based on who my guys are, the nature of the institution or the organization, what they're about. Um, I just think it's important not to walk in with the same canned message. I'll throw this in as well. This will be shocking from a coaching standpoint, um, but it relates to what we're saying right now. I've sort of famously almost never kept my prior work. Um, where that bears itself out most obviously, like in 20 some years of head coaching, I mean, whatever it is, I can't remember. Um, I don't have record of one training session slash practice that I've ever made up. Now there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I'm technologically super average and have always been a legal pad guy. And so, I don't know, I just don't have it uh, electronically and haven't bothered to keep my uh, legal pads or whatever. And so, okay, maybe that's it. But two, um, I'm afraid of becoming stagnant, like scared. And it's one of the things that my head coach struggled with. He, he slowly lost touch. And, you know, he had a super aggressive, idealistic young assistant in me that just slowly kind of gained influence and started doing, in my opinion, too much. So I, I loved my college coach. And like I said, I learned so much from him, but I'm afraid of that. And so um, not keeping training sessions has forced me. I just keep having to invent it, right? I can't rely on the past because aside from my memory, I don't have it. I think it's similar with just values and culture and whatnot. Um, I mean, I might have some stuff, but you, you'd be surprised. I don't have meeting notes. I don't have, I barely have sort of core value lists. I, in fact, a couple I probably just don't have. I think I have some stuff from Navy and not from Messiah. So it's just forced me to reinvent. And yet given who I am, what I'm going to want is always gonna be similar-ish. It just needs to be tailored to the audience. I guess my question for you now is just what have been some of the challenges that you've, as you stepped into Navy and Pittsburgh that you've encountered and maybe things that you've learned from as you've tried to replicate a great culture at other places? Well, I think at Messiah, I was lucky in two ways. Um, one, to have been around the program for 16 years before I took over. So I was super familiar and obviously didn't have to start from scratch. I, I had a very good feel for lots and lots of things, um, as anybody could imagine. Um, so that was one way. The other way was, you know, um, while I, I felt it was a program that was not reaching its potential consistently, it was a good program. So I, I certainly had in those two things, had a really solid footing to go from. In my other three, there've been three additional situations then. In each case, um, I've inherited, um, you know, to be honest, probably a bad team. I mean, like Navy, when I got there, was 196 out of 203 in the RPI the year before. I mean, it was really a program that had lost its way and was, was sort of mired in the past and this sort of thing. Pittsburgh was the same way. And Hope had been a good program, but um, had three really bad years, uh, the three years before I got here. So, you know, it, 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 that was a challenge. I mean, to not be able to start from, from firm footing and to have, a, a, um, uh, you know, just really underachieving teams that had failed, I mean, to be quite honest. And so I, I think the challenge there for me is um, in, in coming in and sort of saying, hey, this is the vision, which is now miles away from reality, right? However far away it was at Messiah, it was further at my other stops. Here we are, and it's a really bad situation, and yet I want to do this, right? And you can barely see it because it's so far away. You know, and, and so many guys aren't in the circle of your vision. Like, this is what I want. And I got guys here and here and here and here. 
well, what do you do about that? And I think the classic mistake in leadership is to come in, be the man, be the authority and expect to snap your fingers and have everybody in. And so luckily, I think I've always had this uh, idea that at least for me, it doesn't work that way. It takes time. It's teaching. It's building. It's process. You have to meet people where they are and work with them. And you have to slowly pull them in to where you want them. And, and I've always said, no matter how far somebody is off of where I want, and look, just as a person in terms of buy-in, culture, et cetera, my general rule of thumb is as long as they're coming my way, even if slowly, I'm okay with that. It might not be what I want. I might want it quicker. The only problem for me is when there's resistance and they're just staying away uh, on purpose. I think that's an issue that, you know, you also have to handle in an artful way, but is more difficult. As long as they're coming my way, I'm willing to be patient, take time, and eventually this thing will come. That kind of leads me to another question I want to ask. Uh, so after I read the Messiah Method, I read it again with the coaches that uh, Nate and I support in our mentorship program. So we read it in the TOC community. And one of the big questions I think coaches left with at the end of the book that we kind of talked about was, you know, Messiah is this special place that's faith-centered. And that, you know, faith-centered, God-centered um, community was in line with somewhat of the mission of the team, you know? And for me, I would kind of summarize the mission uh, in one sense of to glorify God, right? Through the way that you play the game. But other coaches like, you know, yourself, you moved to Navy, you moved to secular programs. Like how do you, how do you help instill a purpose bigger than winning within your, within your team without maybe that faith element uh, being able to be talked about or, or being, you know, relevant within, within the program? It's actually one of the key reasons uh, why I left Messiah. I mean, bullseye right there. I, I wanted to show, to prove uh, uh, to others mainly, because I always believed it, that this had nothing to do with what you just said. I, I, I don't deny that Messiah is uh, both a special place, and, but you know, more importantly and realistically, because my judgment there is subjective, um, it is a niche school because it's a faith-oriented school. So that's just a fact. Um, I believed always deeply that this stuff was totally transcendent and was part of um, the human, the human desiring for this great stuff. You know what I mean? I mean, Nate even said like a few minutes ago, some of this stuff, like who wouldn't want that? So to me, it wasn't connected to faith. And interestingly, um, I, I mentioned before, in all the years that I was there previously, um, people actually probably saw the faith element as a negative. Uh, because we were soft. I mean, I, I'm just saying, I mean, not that we were dead soft, but we, were, we weren't tough enough to be bottom line champions. That, that's my analysis, period. And I think the way the faith element was executed had at least something to do with that. It's ancient history, it's water under the bridge, it doesn't matter. But uh, all of a sudden, it became an, an advantage, so to speak. Maybe, I don't know. I just think it's other things. And so, you know, I, I think the human condition and human nature cries out for something more. We don't always all know it at any certain time, but, you know, why, why do all the best business and leadership books talk about vision and purpose and it's got to be more than profits? You know, why? That has nothing to do with uh, niche business or faith or whatever. So these are just my beliefs. And I, I think, you know, I wanted to go other places um, to really live that out and explore and I would say um, it was borne out. I mean, I, I just think it's 
it's what people want. It's what groups of people want. We all want to be on an awesome team that, you know, and how we execute that, that may happen in different ways. That's fine. But we all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, right? And we all want to be a part of something where, where principles and values mean something and separate us from others. And again, whether we know it or not, I just think it's a, it's a need. And most people anyway have it. So it's an easy sell for me. Wow. So many takeaways from these conversations. I've I've got no doubt that these episodes have produced some of our lengthier notes. So uh, there's just been a lot to take in. And if you want to get your hands on our notes, our coaching notes to this episode, uh, be sure to subscribe to the weekly newsletter and the details of this episode or by going to thriveonchallenge.com. Secondly, if you appreciate this podcast, if you find it valuable, if it's helping you to grow as a coach, we would really appreciate you taking the time to leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and potentially sharing an episode on social media if you if you spend time there as well. So thank you for listening to the podcast and uh, all your support.